Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Lloyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. It is now the end of the road for the lien activation fee challenge in federal court. Senate Bill 863 imposed a $100 activation fee on liens filed prior to January 1, 2013. But Angelotti Chiropractic and other lien claimants sued in the federal court challenging the constitutionality of these provisions, claiming that SB 863 violates the Takings Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. At first, the case seemed to go their way. The trial court issued a preliminary injunction in the lien claimant's favor as to the equal protection claim, but not as to the other claims. The Division of Industrial Relations appealed, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal reversed last June and vacated the injunction in the published case of Angelotti Chiropractic versus Christine Baker. The panel held that the district court properly dismissed the takings clause claim because the economic impact of SB 863 and its interference with plaintiff's expectation was not sufficiently severe to constitute a taking. The panel further concluded that the lien activation fee did not burden any substantive due process right to court access and also rejected plaintiff's claim that the retroactive nature of the lien activation fee violated the Due Process Clause. The lien claimants filed a petition for rehearing in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. The Ninth Circuit now denied the rehearing petition last week. It is possible but highly unlikely that the lien claimants can successfully pursue an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. This would not be the typical type of case of national significance that the Supreme Court would be interested in hearing. Thus, this ruling is probably the end of the road for these lien claimants' efforts to avoid SB 863 activation fees. At this point, there will be a cleanup process where many of the liens will be dismissed for failure to pay an activation fee. The few remaining will be litigated or settled, and perhaps five years after passage of SB 863, the industry will achieve the desired effect of the new law. And now our crime report. During a recent webinar, Versic Analytics outlined the ways medical fraud is perpetrated and ways it can be identified and controlled. According to the company, it is estimated that $234 billion a year goes to medical fraud, waste, and abuse in the healthcare system. That's $28.5 million an hour. And the problem is growing rapidly. In 2000, fraud accounted for 10% of property and casualty spend. But now, five years later in 2015, fraud accounts for 30%. Medical fraud costs an estimated 30 to $50 billion annually. And workers' compensation, $5 billion annually is attributed to fraud, with 30% of that attributed to prescription fraud and abuse. Not surprising, personal injury protection fraud totals $6.8 billion annually. 
One in four personal injury protection claims in New York has a fraud component, while one in three in Florida does. The Florida Office of Insurance Regulation reported no-fault fraud and abuse costs the state's consumers and insurers about $658 million in 2011. The Versic Solutions Manager outlined many common examples of fraud, waste, and abuse. The Insurance Research Council data released earlier this year found that claims with possible fraud and or buildup were more likely to include chiropractic treatment, physical therapy, alternative medicine, and pain clinics. With the changes to the U.S. health care system over the past few years, there is evidence of a trend toward cost shifting from group health care to the property and casualty industry. Doctors are trying to make up for lost revenue by charging more in workers' compensation and auto cases. A former private security officer was sentenced to jail for five felony counts of workers' compensation fraud stemming from an exaggerated accident in 2009. 59-year-old Howard William Neal of Oroville was sentenced to one year in the Butte County Jail as a condition of three years of probationary supervision. Neal will also be required to complete a theft awareness and financial management program and to pay restitution. Neal was working as a private security officer for a local security company when another driver slightly backed into his Crown Victoria at a gas station. Neal claimed extensive back, neck, and leg pain. He was treated and was taken off work. In subsequent medical appointments, Neal told his doctors the impact to his vehicle at the gas station had been so severe that his vehicle was spun around, knocking him down. But investigators obtained surveillance tape from the gas station and found the collision to be minor. The video showed Neal walking normally after the crash, but he started limping when the other party involved saw him. When that individual left, Neil started walking normally again. Neil was seen by several doctors and repeatedly denied any back, neck, or leg injuries prior to the December 2009 event. But investigators found Neil suffered the same type of back injury while lifting boxes 10 years earlier which was also treated under the workers' compensation system. Additionally, Neil used a cane when he went to doctor's offices, but undercover surveillance tapes showed him without any cane while working around his house or with his horses. And in medical news, a former cochlear implant scientist has now developed an enhanced spine implant. Doctors in Australia have carried out the pioneering procedure to treat chronic pain by fitting a permanent spinal cord implant which can record signals from the nervous system and adjust to the strength of impulses sent to the affected areas. The procedure is claimed to be a breakthrough for treatment of chronic pain and could help patients avoid painkillers. Joe Grewal, the first human to be fitted with a permanent implant, said he has suffered from chronic back pain for more than 30 years and now feels amazing. 
The 60-year-old said his pain level had dropped from 8 of 10 before the treatment to 2 or 3 immediately afterward. The device was developed by Saluda Medical and was inserted within the spinal canal about 5 millimeters from the spinal cord. From there, the implant sends an electrical current through the nerves to provide relief in the area of the body that is experiencing pain. The specialist who fitted the implant said it was a big advance because the device could record signals emerging from the nervous system. Ordinary spinal cord stimulators send signals into the spinal cord and so the person with pain feels tingling in the pain area and that confuses the brain so they do not feel the pain. But the new Evoke device, closed loop neuromodulator control system, is designed to automatically adjust stimulation levels for maximum symptom relief irrespective of patient movement. A major drawback of conventional spinal cord stimulation products is that the electrodes placed along the spine move relative to the location of the nerves of the spinal cord. As they move, the level of stimulation of the nerves changes. Simple activities like coughing, sitting down, or moving the head can cause changes in the nerve signals of up to 10 times, often causing unpleasant sensations, uncomfortable tingling, or severe shocks. The new machine can adjust itself to produce whatever set level the patient wants, and that's a big advance. The implant, which will initially cost about $30,000, has the potential to help patients with other nerve conditions, including Parkinson's disease and overactive bladder syndrome. The dealer developer of the product was formerly an executive director at Cochlear, a global biotechnology company based in Australia that designs, manufactures, and supplies the nucleus cochlear implant. Cochlear was named Australia's most innovative company in 2002 and 2003 and one of the world's most innovative companies by Forbes in 2011. High rates of inappropriate opioid use, physician drug dispensing, and the increased utilization and cost of pharmaceuticals have been well documented by public policy research. But these issues are now associated with another emerging cost driver, drug testing. Prior CWCI research on the topic published in May 2012 documented the viral-like growth in the volume of drug testing in the system that began a decade ago. This new CWCI study builds on that initial research using more recent and detailed data. Utilization of quantitative drug tests between 2007 and 2014 increased by a whopping 2,431%. Quantification of opiates remains the leading test by volume, followed by quantification of substances that would be illicit or problematic in conjunction with the use of prescribed medications. Among the injured workers who were drug tested, the average number of tests per employee per date of service more than tripled, driving the average amount paid per date of service up 
from $96 in 2007 to $307 in 2014, a 220% increase. There is now evidence of a migration to physician-in-office non-laboratory drug testing, a change that may lead to overutilization. In 2008, 74% of urine drug test services were provided by just four outside laboratories. But during the ensuing four years, the mix of providers shifted, with the big laboratories accounting for a declining share while the number of non-laboratory providers billing for these services increased. Absent an accepted evidence-based protocol on the appropriate level and scope of testing, it is difficult to reconcile the increases in drug testing with favorable outcomes for the injured worker. The U.S. prices for the world's 20 top-selling medicines are, on average, three times higher than in Britain. The finding underscores a transatlantic gulf between the price of treatments for a range of diseases and follows demands for lower drug costs in America. The 20 medicines, which together accounted for 15% of global pharmaceutical spending in 2014, are a major source of profits for companies including AbbVie, AstraZeneca, Merck, Pfizer, and Roche. Researchers from Britain's University of Liverpool also found U.S. prices were constantly higher than in other European markets. Elsewhere, U.S. prices were six times higher than in Brazil and 16 times higher than the average in the lowest-priced country, which was usually India. The United States, which leaves pricing to market competition, has higher drug prices than other countries where governments directly or indirectly control medicine costs. That makes it by far the most profitable market for pharmaceutical companies, leading to complaints that Americans are effectively subsidizing health systems elsewhere. Manufacturers say decent returns are needed to reward high-risk research and prices reflect the economic value provided by medicines. They also point to higher U.S. survival rates for diseases such as cancer and the availability of industry-backed access schemes for poorer citizens. In recent years, the price differential has been exacerbated by above-inflation annual increases in U.S. drug prices at a time when governments in Europe have capped costs or even pushed prices down. In fact, U.S. prices for top brand-name drugs jumped 127% between 2008 and 2014, compared with an 11% rise in a basket of common household goods. The U.S. Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America says international comparisons are misleading because list prices do not take into account discounts available as a result of aggressive negotiation by U.S. insurers. These discounts can drive down the actual price paid by U.S. insurance companies substantially. However, similar confidential discounts are also offered to big European buyers, such as Britain's National Health Service. 
And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA cited two Northern California construction businesses more than $300,000 for exposing workers to cave-in hazards at a residential construction site in Piedmont. The companies violated Cal OSHA's order to stop work until the imminent hazard was abated. Cal OSHA cited Mateo-based San Mateo-based general contractor EMI Design and Construction Incorporated for 10 workplace safety violations, including two willful and three serious in nature, with total proposed penalties of nearly $165,000. Salt Light Investments, Inc., a construction project management company in Berkeley, was cited for three workplace safety violations, including two willful in nature, with proposed penalties of more than $140,000. The violations were discovered during an April 20 investigation at the residential construction site. Kalosha investigators found 11-foot unshored walls and issued a stop work order that same day to address the unsafe excavation. Three weeks later, Kalosha learned that the employers ordered workers back to the site despite failing to correct the imminent hazards. EMI was also cited for three serious violations for an unguarded floor opening, an unguarded wall opening, and unguarded exposed rebar ends. A similar hazard caused a fatal accident at a Milpitas construction site in January 2012. In that case, a construction employer ordered a worker back to an excavation site with unshored 12-foot walls three days after a stop work order had been issued because of the hazard. The walls caved in, killing the worker. Cal OSHA launched a criminal investigation in that case, leading to two years jail time for both the construction company owner and the project manager. A serious violation is cited when there is a realistic possibility that death or serious harm could result from the actual hazardous condition. A willful violation is cited when the employer is aware of the law and violates it or when the employer is aware of the hazardous condition and does not take reasonable steps to address it. And in other news, about 30 people who say SB 863 has created a complicated and convoluted system express their frustration in a protest outside the workers' compensation offices in Salinas last week. Dr. David Torres Spokesman for the protesters said there are increases in depression, anxiety, suicide, divorce, and fractured families because of the new law. Torres is an assistant professor at Stanford School of Medicine and a chronic pain specialist who marched with the other protesters. He says there have been complaints of major delays in the access, treatment, medication, and follow-up of patients. Torres said workers he sees are dissatisfied with the effects of SB 863 and what he says are the draconian methods that various workers' compensation insurance carriers are using to not deny them some very basic medical rights and benefits. 
He said he was speaking for and showing his support of injured farm workers from the Monterey, Santa Cruz, and San Benito County areas. Torres said the processes keep the patient from getting needed treatment, therapy, or medicines. And he said it is getting more difficult to find doctors who accept workers' compensation patients because of the amount of paperwork involved, which he claims has become punitive. Gilbert Stein, a lawyer who specializes in workers' compensation, told the crowd they were protesting in the wrong place. He said they should be protesting the law with their legislators. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Folson, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.